0: So as you guys can see, we are currently in our marriage series, and we have covered three topics so far. We've covered kind of the overall biblical concept of marriage, um, then Pastor Hanley taught about the biblical concept of family. Last time we met up, we talked about homosexuality, and, and this tonight, we going to be talking about transgenderism. Um, if you notice, as we're going through our schedule, we're about halfway through this series and and i've added uh, it added a mentor's q a in there um we will be having that i i don't i haven't i didn't put down dates just in case things change up but um it will come after uh, i guess after i preach one sermon on how to date well um and the mentors q a just kind of prepare you guys for that it is the time for you guys to ask some of our mentors our older mentors here about their marriage about uh, their dating life about Just what it means to be a biblical husband and a biblical wife and and the challenges of that as well. And so I I just pray that as we're going through this series and we're we're walking through scripture, um, that if you guys have questions, you guys want to hear some more experience, uh, write those down. Be prepared with those questions. I I know for myself, I've only been married for about, what is it, eight months now? Um, and so I, I know I'm not the most experienced in being married. And, and so a lot of my teaching is just going to be simply biblical principles that I'm going to lay out. Um, but if you want to hear more stories and how those principles are going to be applied, um, come prepared with those questions for our mentors. And, I'll, and I myself, I, I pray I'll be edified by their answers. And so this is, our, this is kind of the overview of our schedule, the way we're going. Um, and so tonight we are talking about transgenderism. And, and as we look at this topic, I, I want us to, to think about, you know, the, the stuff that's going on in our world today, right? Especially in our Western culture and society. So to hear someone say, I am a girl stuck in a boy's body, that, that statement itself, that, that was unthinkable just 20 years ago. Think about just how fast our culture has changed on viewing what it means to be a man and a woman. This, this is what we're dealing with. The, the sexual revolution has has carried us, carried us to this point today. And when we talk about the sexual revolution. This, this movement that started in the 1960s started as a movement that that wanted to just remove the stigmas around sex, um, specifically sex outside of marriage. So they they just want to remove the stigma of that. They want to make that an okay thing. But as that movement slowly gained ground, it spawned into this huge tidal wave of moral change and disorder that we are witnessing now today. And so this revolution was never going to stop as just sex outside of marriage. This revolution was going to carry forth a complete moral upheaval in our society. And this, this is what happens when we start talking about gender and biological sex as two different things, as separating them apart and when you do that, you start losing the, your grasp on reality itself. Now I, I looked at the term transgender. I, I, went, I, I went online, try to look up a definition because to be honest, there's, there's definitions uh, around a lot of this gender identity, sexual orientation stuff is constantly changing. And, and so I went to this site called transstudent.org and this is what they how they defined transgender. They says it's an encom, uh, encompassing term of many gender identities of those who do not identify or exclusively identify with their sex assigned at birth. The term transgender is not indicative of gender expression or sexual orientation, hormonal makeup, physical anatomy, or how one is perceived in daily life. Now, we look at this and this this is just so trans is a broad term that they're using. And, and if you go to this site and you go to your definitions page, you see a list full of different identities on there. But what's funny about that page is that right on the top, there's a disclaimer, a disclaimer that says these definitions are constantly changing. And, and they're going to try their best to keep it up to date. I just find that somewhat ridiculous this is where our world is going to today constant changing definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman or whatever in between it's now considered as a spectrum is no longer binary the effects of this revolution is everywhere i mean how many of you guys have filled out some kind of registration form and and you and under gender or sex, there's no longer just two options. There's a third one, a blank line for you to fill out however you want to be identified as. Or think about companies you've worked in. Think about how fast HR departments have to move to accommodate to this new gender association. Think about public restrooms, no longer being classified as male and female, now it's just a restroom. Think about schools. Schools who when the student comes in and they ask you, what pronoun do you want to be associated with? Think about our think about our government and our leaders. And just this past week, our president has appointed a transgender doctor as his secretary, assistant secretary of health. And people are celebrating that. Now, nothing against the doctor. He I actually don't know if he or she, but that person might have the right credentials. And and so he might actually be the person that's fit for the job, but they're celebrating the fact that this doctor is transgender. Or we think about Congress, when they met this past week, they passed a new house rule banning all gender terms and pronouns, meaning you can't use any terms like father, or mother, or son, daughter, and, and you can't use those terms. You have to use things that are gender neutral. I mean, when, when, when a revolution disrupts society so much that it changes the very meaning of our vocabulary, I mean, I, I think it's worth to stop and ask, how have we gone too far with this revolution? We well, we see here that this is not just breaking reality, it's breaking the very nature of our language. All these terms and definitions, they start losing its meaning, its purpose. And there's no slowing down with where how things are going. Now there are many factors that that has gotten us to where we are today. Last time when we talked about homosexuality, that was a big factor. right Last time when we talk about homosexuality we, we redefine marriage. I need society redefine marriage so that's no longer between a man and a woman in holy matrimony. It's now just two people. two people coming together. And and when you start doing that, you start losing concepts of husband and wife, father and mother. And, And slowly, when these roles become broken down and they become interchangeable, that doesn't matter what gender you are, what sex you are, you see that gender itself starts losing meaning. This is why we need to teach about this, why the biblical definition of a marriage and a family is so important, because this is what keeps our society together. But let's think about this even further. We're dealing here with not just an issue of definitions, we're dealing here with an issue of identity. And when we start disconnecting identity from our body, we start losing grasp and understanding of who we are as a person, as a human being. Think, for instance, about technology and how fast technology has moved these days. Technology, I'm not saying every technology teaches this, but subconsciously, technology has changed the way people have think about their identity. With with technology, people have the ability now to recreate themselves, to recreate themselves completely into a different person to who they want to be in a virtual world. And so we're talking about stuff like social media platforms to video games. These things, technology has taught people that they can escape the real world and enter a world where they can be what they call their true selves. And so what happens then is that our human bodies begin to lose value, begins to lose its God-given identity. And, and the body begin, it, it no longer serves any purpose. And, and what the world teaches us today is that true identity is about looking inward. they they, they call it the individual expression of self and and pretty much what the world is trying to teach us is that what is true about each person is found inside of them and and so if anyone tries to limit that self self self-expression if anyone tries to redefine you in any way then you have every right to say that you are being oppressed And that's also kind of what we see what's happening to churches and Christians today. And it's more than that. If you're oppressed, and we think about the word oppressed, and so now we're getting into realms of justice and race issues, and you see how everything's connected. If you're oppressed, you deserve, then they say that you deserve to have your voice heard and that your oppressors should be silenced and pushed away. Guys, this is exactly what we saw last time in I see of Romans 1.18, that they are suppressing the truth of God. In other words, what's at stake here with this breakdown of gender identity is God's glory. And that's what I want to do for us tonight as we dig through scripture. I want us to trace through scripture and see just how important God is thinks about our identity within our bodies as male and female. And as we talk about gender, we talk about gender identity. I, I, I want to be clear. I'm talking about gender, not as a psychological concept. I'm talking about gender as the biological sex that you have been assigned at birth by God. And so I'm not separating the two parts. Gender and sex goes together. And so it all begins again with Genesis chapter one. When we look at God's created order and throughout this series, we've constantly been going back to Genesis chapter one because it matters. Creation matters in this discussion. And and as we think about this, we have to think about ourselves as Christians. We are truth bearers in this world. We are people who are going to be proclaiming truth, but not just proclaiming truth. We have to live out the truth. And the truth is this that God has created each one of you as either a male or a female in his image. That is two distinct sexes. As male and female created uniquely distinct from one another. And, And therefore we are equal and yet different. If you turn me to Genesis chapter one, And Genesis chapter 1, uh, we'll we'll spend very quickly here since we talked about Genesis chapter 1 a lot in this series. We we take a look at this. Genesis chapter 1, we look at verse 26. And verse 26, we, we see here that says, God said, when he's creating man, he says, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule. Well, what we see here immediately is that humanity is created in the image of the Godhead, of the Trinity, that there is this plurality in this image. It is us making man in our image, in our likeness. Then we look at verse 27 and it says, God created man in his image. And so now we're looking at this and we're thinking, wait, is this their image or his image? Is it plural or is it singular? And we realize that it's both because that's just who God is, right? He is the Godhead. He's God is one and yet God is three. Then it says here, end of verse 27, male and female, he created them. So he created both male and female, them. So man here is not just a singular person, but it's humanity, male and female, under the image of God. There is this diversity and unity when it comes to God, and therefore there's this diversity and unity when it comes to humanity, when it comes to men and women, when it comes to male and female. And and we get the sense here, that this, this is, this is what it means to be in God, to be an image of God. Let us know here that man and woman are created equal in the image of God. Then in Genesis 2, Genesis 2 shows us, describes to us, and we're not going to look through this in detail, but as we think about Genesis 2, and I'm assuming most of you guys have a understanding of Genesis 2, we see here a description, a detailed description of how this works. And so male and female are created image of God, but, but does that mean they're the same? And we see in Genesis 2 that they're not. Because in Genesis 2, we find out that man was created first. That man was created from the dust of the ground and God breathed life into this man, Adam. And so Adam was the head. He was the first. He was the representative of mankind to God. And then we find out later in Genesis 2, Eve was created. But we see here, Eve was not created the same way as as Adam was. Eve was not created as a fellow, like another head of humanity. Instead, Eve was created as a helper, a perfect, suitable companion. And the making of Eve itself was different. Eve was formed from one of Adam's ribs. She was created from man. She was created second. And we have to understand that this right here, this account of creation, sets the foundation of our gender identity, our society. Our society today is not, they're they're not battling against just unhealthy stereotypes. This is not just a battle against toxic masculinity. This is a rebellion against God, God's order. Against God's created order, where he has created man and woman as distinct sexes. And so as Christians, we cannot apologize for recognizing this. We cannot, rec- we cannot apologize for recognizing that our male and femaleness Are part of our identity that our biological sex that our gender is signed at birth has a meaning that God did not make a mistake that God knew exactly what he was doing all this matters to God he created us in his image and therefore how we identify ourselves matter to him and this was true for Israel turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 22 Deuteronomy chapter 22, we're going to look at verse 5, and here we're going to see God's law, God's law for gender distinction, and we're going to look at one verse, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, this verse is talking about cross-dressing, and when we think about Deuteronomy, we know that this is in the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, and so, and so, you know, we're not, our church today, we're not underneath this law anymore, but that doesn't mean that what we find here in Deuteronomy or in the rest of the Torah, the rest of the law, what we find there, it doesn't mean that it has no re- relevance for us today. It does have relevance, that the principles that are being taught here, they still persist today because they're principles that reflect the very nature and character of God. And So let's see then how God understands our gender distinctions. Let's read this Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5 it says a woman shall not wear man's clothing nor shall a man put on woman's clothing for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Let me point out a few things here first we notice we have to understand here that this is a prohibition right. And, and I actually don't think the word not here, the word not, is, is not very accurately translated because this prohibition here in the Hebrew is continuous. So so better translation is, is, is that it should be never, never wear man's, a woman should never wear man's clothing, nor should a man ever put on woman's clothing. And what the law here is saying is that the law is not saying stop doing it. The law is saying you should never do it. Next, let's take a closer look at the word man. So here, the word man is literally translated as a strong man. It's a Hebrew word, geber. And, 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 and we think about this Hebrew geber, it's, it's not the typical word used to speak about an individual man. There's, there's another word, another word in Hebrew that's used, the word ish. And in the word ish, depending on the context can usually be translated as man or husband but in this verse in deuteronomy 22 verse 5 the word here is geber and and, and what this word here is stands for is to use to distinguish adult males from women and children so it's not speaking about humanity as a whole humanity as a whole the hebrew word is, is adam adam but This word here is talking about this specifically adult males. If you you look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, the the word is used there and is used to distinguish the adult man from the woman and the children. Next in this verse, let's look at the word clothing. Now the the word clothing here in English, at least in the NASB, shows up twice. Right, it says that a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. I believe in the ESV, there are different words. The first word is garment and the second word is cloak. And, 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 and the reason why there are different words in ESV is because they are different Hebrew words. The word garment here is, it refers to a broader term. It's a broad term that, that refers to any object here that's associated specifically with men. The word cloak, on the other hand, was a more specific word that, that that talks about this outer garment, an outer jacket that you that you put on over yourself. And so and so I want to pay, pay a little bit more attention to this phrase in the beginning when it talks about a man's garment, because it's referred, it's really broad. It's talking about any object, it's not just talking about clothing. The, the word here can actually be used to, to represent vessels or equipment or weapons. In other words, it's, it's, whatever, it's, whatever, it's whatever item is associated with the male gender. So the point is this, that Israel must guard themselves from gender confusion, that they must make sure they, don't, they engage in the roles, uh, even as something as nominal as clothes, they must engage in the roles that's associated with their biological sex. Lastly, as we look at this verse, it says here that these things, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord our God. Abomination here, and it means it's to describe something that goes against the very nature of God. It is used in Deuteronomy to talk about idolatry, which is an abomination of rebellion against God as the object you worship. Uh, talks about witchcraft and, and there is is used to talk about dishonest gain as well. All, all these things here rebels against God's nature. Idolatry replaces God's glory. Witchcraft replaces God's word. And dishonesty diminishes the value of God's image in man. In other words, these things belittle God and takes advantage of all. And so... God here says in Deuteronomy 22:5 5, that cross-dressing is an abomination, meaning cross-dressing something that, is something that is deeply against the nature of God. This is not a small prohibition. This is a law that recognizes that you, as a man or a woman, are a creation of God made in this image. We have to think about just how important this is, just how important it is that we have to cement our identity, our reality in nature itself, in who we are in our bodies, that we live indeed a real life here, that we live in a real world around us that we don't spiritualize everything, but that all that we are, our human bodies, the world around us are real and everything means all this physical matter around us has a purpose. They're telling us something. Undermining gender distinction will will unravel all of that. For instance, Take a look. Let me read another portion of the law. Uh, in the same chapter, Deuteronomy 22, to jump down with me to verse 13. Let me go and just read this for you guys. I'll read a few verses. It says, if, a, if any man takes a wife and goes into her, then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother should shall take out and bring out the evidence of this girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate, and, and so on. As this law continues on, we, we read that read that law and try to make sense of it. If the, if the if the if these nouns that are used here are gender neutral, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense, right? That the law of God itself will fall apart if. There's no gender distinction. And when that falls apart, then the nation of Israel will fall apart. It matters. It matters who you are as a man or a woman. And we note here in Deuteronomy 22, five that cross-dressing is just the start of it. It's just the start of it. We don't want to be overly legalistic about this. Right? In today's world, if a, we don't wanna condemn a young girl who's dressed up like Wreck-It Ralph for Halloween. But, but as, as Christians, as Christians, we do hold a responsibility of teaching the youth about cementing their identity in God and how they created them to be. We, we do hold a responsibility of living, it, living out our gender identity living it out as an example of what it means to be a godly man and a godly woman. We hold that responsibility. And so these principles that we find in the law matter. Now, this is the Old Testament. As we go to the New Testament, we will find that as Jesus fulfills this law, we will find that Jesus himself, he never abolished gender distinction. And in fact, Jesus upheld them. Right, Jesus was born as a biological man. And he recognized both men and women in his ministry. he calls them as they are. He he calls his biological parents, mother and father. He calls his biological siblings, brothers. He treats the woman as woman. He treats the men as men. Furthermore, as we dig through the epistles, we see that when Paul addresses the church, he addresses and he lays out roles in the church, distinguishing between what it means to be a man in church and a woman in the church. He lays out two different specific roles for them. There's a clear distinction between these two sentences, which brings us then to our third point, God's glory and gender distinction. And here we're going to turn to the New Testament. and We're going to look at 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter eleven. First Corinthians chapter eleven. We're going to look at verse three to sixteen, and, and here we have um, the, the controversial passage of head coverings. And, and it's a long passage. That we're going to cover here. We're going to look at verses three to sixteen. So I'm not. So I'm not going to cover it all. I, I can't get to it all in, in our time here. Uh, and so. And so if you have any questions, fortunately, our Sunday sermons, if you have been listening to our Sunday service and here at FCBC wana we've been going through 1 Corinthians. And so my suggestion to you is tune in on, on that Sunday when we go through this passage. Instead, I'm going I'm I'm to try to explain this passage in a more broader sense, in a bigger sense. What we see here in this passage is Paul, Paul describing... What it means to be a man and a woman in the church. Now, now, contextually, the bigger picture of First Corinthians here is that Paul is, is talking about the, talking about unity within the church, and he's talking about church services and how the, how men and women should conduct themselves in church services. And so, starting from chapter eleven all the way to chapter fourteen, we have stuff like spiritual gifts. We talk, we see the Lord's Supper being talked about in there, and, and we talk about unity a lot. But it begins here in chapter 11 about head coverings. About head coverings, about about what it means to be a man and a woman. And, and and when we talk about head coverings here, yes, we do understand there's this, a lot of contextual culture stuff that's happening in this chapter, right? In America, we don't distinguish male and female people by their head coverings. I mean, I'm wearing a hat right now, but this hat is, I guess, gender neutral. Um, so, you. And so what we see here in in chapter 11, verses 3 to 16, we have to understand there's a principle here, a principle that we must take away. And principle is this, that there is a distinction between genders. And when we have to understand that there is a distinct distinction between genders, and that's so necessary to have a necessary distinction between genders to have in order to have a unified worship service within the church. That's what he's talking about here. And so there are, and so let me real quick, just pull out five characteristics of this gender distinction that's being laid out here. Uh, first, we note in verse three, we see here that the men are the head of women. Verse three says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and the God is the head of Christ. Now I'm reading from the NASB. I I usually preach from the NASB, but the reason I'm using the NASB uh, tonight is because I I believe this NASB does this passage more justice with its translation. Um, Because many times the word for man and woman in the New Testament can be translated either as man or husband or woman or wife. And context would determine what translation it is. And I don't think this context here talks about marriage. I do think Paul here is talking about man and woman. And so I know the ESB, I believe is translated as the man, the head of the wife. I think that the NASB does better translation here. But in any case, whether it's woman or wife, there's still a distinction in gender. And what we see here is that the man is the head of a woman. But look here at verse three, at the other two relationships that Paul compares this relationship to, he says here that Christ is the head of man and God is the head of Christ. And so, if you were to say that man is not the head of woman, that the two are equal, the two are the same, you can interswitch the two. Then you that means you're undermining the relationship between man and Christ, and Christ and God. In other words, you're you're denying. You're denying the, the Trinity itself. You're denying the Godhead. You're saying that the that the Son could be the Father and the Father could be the Son. And, and that's not Orthodox Christianity. Now, there's a lot of debate around what headship here means. And so I'm not going to get into that. But what we but we just simply read this verse in the English. And we just read it and we just trust our understanding of the of our reading here we recognize here that men clearly have a different and a bit higher role than the woman as the head of them now let's look at the next the next thing here next characteristic we see here that in verse 4 to 6, that men and women must present themselves as men and women, respectively. Verse 4 to 6, it says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, there's a lot going on here when we're talking here about head coverings. And again, there's a lot of debate around what this is. What we do know is that culturally back then, a head covering most likely um, refers to a veil that was worn, uh, symbolizing that this woman was taken as a wife to someone else. And so the woman will wear this veil to signify that she's taken and she's committed to her husband. And so woman who didn't wear a veil would signify that she's available, available for other men to, to have. And so again, there's a lot of debate around this, but let us again stick to the straight reading of what we see here in verses four to six. And we just read the text. We, we understand here that even when it comes to spiritual gifts, right? The praying, the prophesying, even when it comes to spiritual gifts, men and women are not the same. They are to hold different ways, distinct roles on how to exercise those gifts. And that, we, we get that when we just read verses four to six. And then when we turn to verse seven to 10, man and woman relationship is rooted in creation. We read here verse seven, for a man out not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I want us to note these words here carefully. We're going to, we're, we're, we're going to we're gonna dig into these, this, these few verses a little bit more, um, but I want us to think and just, just kind of just read through this, right? Remember God created humanity as male and female in his image, but how exactly does that work? And, and well, it's, it says right here that man is the image and glory of God. And so man as a male human being created first in the image of God, reflecting the glory of God then it says woman here woman is the glory of man and so the woman here is not the image of man but she does reflect the glory of man and so the woman is we we, we remember back in Genesis she's the image of God but she's not the image of man here and so there's something going on here and I know there's a lot of questions that might come from that I'm just going to ask you to hold them for now we're going to come back to this and we're going to dig into this a little bit further. Right? I just want us to just pay attention closely to what these words are saying. Well, what we see here ultimately is that Paul, when, when we see here ultimately is that Paul is coming to this conclusion, to this conclusion about how men and women relationships work based on the creation order, right? That man was created first and from man, woman. And so that's what we get here. Uh verse 11 to 12, again, we'll come back to that. Verse 11 to 12, we see here another, another statement that man and woman here. They cannot exist without one another. So this shows the equality of importance between the two. And in verse 11 it says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman and all things originate from God. I mean, what we see here is that men and, men and women, male and female, they're distinct in their roles, but they're inseparable. They may be different, but they're equal in value. Both matter when it comes to male and female roles. And then in verse 13 and 16, let's read this it says, Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature or self teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. And what we see here is that even our hair makes us distinct and again, there's a lot of cultural references and understanding debates around hair, hairstyle, hair length, not gonna get into that. But what we do see here is a key word, nature. Nature self refers here to the natural order of things, to the creation order. In other words, there are distinct gender differences that are natural to both men and women and that natural nature of our differences are, is played out culturally. It's played out based on our society and our context. The main idea here gets across that men and women are indeed different. And so what can we see from this passage? Well, first, what we see here is that our battle here is not against cultural norms on gender, but it's on cementing our gender identity on our biological sex and expressing that identity culturally. You know, as we we look at this passage, again, we we understand that there's a lot of things going here contextually, culturally. But the problem here is not cultural expectation cultural expectation changes all the time from era to era, from nation to nation. So we understand that, we recognize that. And, 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 And as we're looking at this, we're looking at this, what Paul here is teaching is that we as a church, as Christians, as male and female, we must always dress and act as men and women, as culturally appropriate. And of course the nuance here is, as long as the culture's teaching of manhood and womanhood does not go against scripture's teaching. And so as Christians, as Christians, yes, we should admit, as Christians, we should admit that there has indeed been some harmful stereotypes of men and women, especially in our nation when we're talking about the feminist movements back 50 years ago. And there there are some things that they were fighting for that was right, that we should recognize that. There is definitely stereotypes and women's rights that should be fought for. But we cannot go so far in saying that men and women are the same, that they share the same role in society. We have to recognize that there are indeed differences between the two. And that leads us to the second point here that humanity portrays the glorious image of the trying God in a union between two distinct yet equal genders. And what I'm gonna do here, I know we've been, we've been going through all this for a while now and, but I, I'm gonna try to lift our minds up theologically to think about this for a moment to kind of consider what it means to be male and female. And so, and so just hang out with me here. It's okay if you don't understand everything, I'm just gonna go through for a second, but, but just, just just think about what it means to actually submit ourselves to God's word and how God defines these gender identity. And so in order to help us out, let me, go, let me build a diagram for you guys, All right? This, this is gonna be a summary of everything we just covered in this message. And the first thing that we recognize here is that there's a God. And within that God, there's three persons. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians, the focus of the relationship doesn't have the Spirit. doesn't mean it's not important, but the focus here is upon the relationship between the Father and the Son. And it says here that the Father is the head of the Son. That means the Son submits to the Father, and Jesus Christ himself omits that. Right, Jesus Christ himself says that I submit myself to do my Father's will. And, and in fact, if we go, to, if we go through the scriptures so and we go through the gospel accounts in John chapter 17, verse 4, it says that Jesus glorifies the Father by accomplishing his will. And so we see there as, as the Son submits to the Father, he also glorifies the Father. And, and if glory is what matters here, In the very next verse in John chapter 17, verse 5, we find out that the father glorifies the son with the same glory by which the son and the father shares as God. And so the son here is is submissive to the father. The father is the head of the son and they both glorify each other in their roles. And yet they are one. They are one God. And so this here, is the trinity through little triangle but when we, when we get a sense here when we think about god I, I know the trinity just it's so immense so infinite we can't wrap our minds around it but what we see here is a beautiful picture of unity between these three distinct persons and here specifically between the father and the son they both share the same glory, yet they both glorify one another. God, holding two distinct roles in the Godhead, yet one God, and it is in this image humanity is created. And we see here humanity is created in this wonderful image, and humanity God created male, <laughs> created male and a female, and we see here that the male here it says right back and. forth, 1 Corinthians eleven seven 7, says here that man, he's the image and the glory of God. So if he's the head, um, or sorry, back in verse 3, says that Christ is the head of every man. So that means Christ here is the head of man, and that means the man submits to the son. And in turn, we get here the relationship between the man and the woman. Um... Well, we get here again, the, the sense of the glorification, right? the when we jump to verse 7, we got that man here is the image and the glory of God. So he reflects the glory of God. So God re- glorifies man in this way, in this distinct rose. Then we have the female role. The female role where, male is the, where man is the head of the woman, and the woman submits to man. And it says here that the woman is the glory of man. And so the male glorifies the female in other words lifts her up gives her honor gives her worth but we recognize that in this submission in our submission to to those who are superior over us we are also glorifying them and so the woman glorifies man by submitting to him but the man also glorifies the woman because that's what it says here that the woman is created from man and for man and is the glory of man. And so there's equal worth going on here. Now, does this mean that the woman does not receive any glory from God? No, because the glory that this woman receives from man is the very same glory that the man receives from God himself. In other words the glory that humanity as a whole receives from god is represented in this beautiful picture of headship and submission between the man and the woman and when this when these roles are played out biblically ultimately this glorifies god Humanity is the collective image of God, a union of distinct parts, all the image of God, yet all different in roles and function. We, we, we can try to wrap our minds around this, but it's, and it's hard to wrap our minds around this. And, and that's, that's the beauty of truth though. You see, we, we tend to think that we have to master truth, right? That's what, uh, s- not science, but scientism, right? That the religion of science is trying to master truth. But in reality, what we need to recognize is truth needs to master us. We are to submit to truth. And what First what Corinthians chapter 11 is laying out for us is that this is how the image of God works between a man and a woman. This is how it works. We don't need it. We're constantly trying to wrestle and trying to think, wait, how does this exactly turn out? We're trying to fit it all together with our human logic. God here is describing to us this is how it works. It works through headship, it works through glorification, it works through submission. All of this represents the image of God. All of this brings glory to God as our creator. And this truth should make you feel overwhelmed. This truth should make you feel in awe of the beauty and the glory of God and his design for us. Because guys, we are not like animals. We are not just pieces of matter. We are the very image of the Triune God. Male and female, we are created as one image, yet in distinct parts. In the very essence of what this looks like, this relationship between a man and a woman, the very essence and the, the highest level of what this can look like is found in marriage. Marriage is supposed to be the one flesh union between one man and one woman, two distinct genders unified as one flesh. Both of equal worth, both distinct in their roles Guys, there is nothing more beautiful than building a marriage that is molded after our great God. And this is why I wanted to address this topic in our marriage series. Because we have to build our marriages based on biblical principles of humanity and gender. And ultimately, what all of this represents is this is what love is. Love is some is playing out these biblical roles, representing God in, 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 in true headship and true submission, glorifying one another, lifting one another up towards God Himself. You know, after tonight's message, we will start going more practical. We'll start digging into more practical issues on how to prepare ourselves for marriage. But I, what I want us to do is I want us to think. Through this, to think through this, this theology that we're learning here. That that dating and marriage is not just some is more than just your personal satisfaction. That the dating and marriage, that how you date, how you get married, and how you stayed married, it actually speaks truth into this world. It's missional. We have to remember that we are Christians. First and foremost, salt and light in this world. Guys, your life and the way you live is a testimony of God. It's a testimony of the gospel of Christ. As we will learn later in Ephesians chapter 5. The world has seen enough broken marriages. In fact, they've seen so many broken marriages, they have given up on it. We and when we recognize this, when we recognize that the world has given up on marriage, we should be sympathetic to that. Our hearts break over that. But let us bring hope by presenting to them a beautiful picture of marriage, of a picture that's lived out the way God designed marriage to be. Let us show the world that there is indeed hope. But it's hope that's not found within themselves. It's not about finding their true authentic self. It's, it's not hope that revolves around changing society norms or gender uh, uh, gender definitions. It's not about changing definitions of marriage. Um, it's, that's not where hope is found. We need to show them that hope is found in God and God alone. That's what this is all about. And so the big idea that we see here tonight is that scripture calls you to pursue marriage in the Lord by honoring and upholding the gender distinctions established by God. This is what it's all about. Let me leave you guys with three practical applications from this. First, know your vocabulary, know your definitions. I actually recommend to you read and understand the terms that our society is promoting today. I know they're changing all the time. it's be hard to keep up, but, but try your best. It's just know and understand what they're talking about because this is actually what it means to listen to people, to, to actually ask them, what do you mean by this identity, by this sexuality? Listen to them. Understand what they're trying to identify themselves as. Know these terms, but don't hold on to them. Know them, but don't hold on to them. In fact, we, we, we should try to understand it, but we have to remember that our convictions must be centered in Christ, must be centered in scripture. And our convictions, our convictions must be molded around how scripture defines humanity. But that doesn't mean we should be ignorant of how the world uses these vocabulary and definitions. Second, find your true self in God. And what this means is that it begins with submitting yourself to God. Submitting yourself to your creator. To recognize that he has created you as a male and female with a purpose. Explore that purpose in scripture. Pay attention. When you read through scripture, pay attention to the gender nouns. They're not gender neutral. What does it mean to be a wife? What does it mean to be a daughter? What does it mean to be a mother? What does it mean to be a father, a son, or a husband? All these terminology that scripture uses matters. Don't listen to this world. Your true, authentic self is not found by looking inwards, it is found by looking upwards towards God. And if you are here today with us and you're not a believer, if this is your first time hearing about this and learning about the biblical definitions of gender, of male and female, of God, I encourage you, I encourage you to, to come to know God. Maybe you, you're here with us tonight, and if you're not a believer, maybe you're struggling with your identity. And I, I want to encourage you, I want to ask you that it begins first with, admitting to yourself that you are a sinner, that you are a sinner before God. And I know that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to admit your shame, your guilt, but that's the beauty of being honest before God because God forgives you as a sinner. He forgives you by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the image of him as fully man, as a representative of you, to die on the cross for your sins so that the penalty of your sins is wiped off, paid away, wiped clean. Come to God as a sinner, confess your sins to him and come to know Christ, his son, as your savior, as your Lord. If you want more information about the gospel, I'll be available to chat if you're an unbeliever here. Uh, lastly, begin fostering biblical husband and wife qualities now before marriage. So this is speaking to all you guys who are in it who may be single, maybe dating, maybe engaged. Uh, and I don't know what religious status you're in. I know some of you guys maybe recently broke up and, and it hurts. But let me let me encourage you in this way, that all these things that we saw here about men, about manhood and womanhood, these gender identities, they, they don't have to start when you're married. You can pursue these qualities now. And yes, I know scripture, when they talk about biblical manhood, womanhood, they tend to use terms like husband and wife. And so it sounds like you have to be married, but if you analyze the characteristics of them, there are characteristics that you alt- yeah, you can pursue now, that you can live out now today. Look, if marriage is your goal, it starts today with how you live and how you foster these biblical qualities as a single male or female. Because if you're single, you're no less a man and woman in- before God. What marriage does is marriage just adds more responsibility to you to live out. But you can pursue biblical manhood and womanhood today. That is what we must understand from this passage, from this theological lesson that we heard here tonight. And next time when we get together, I'll start digging a little bit further about how to do that. How to pursue biblical manhood and womanhood in your singleness. And so with that, let me go ahead and close this in a word of prayer. Let me show the discussion questions first. And yeah, let's continue to live out our identity for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we got, that we can come together and look at your word and, and look at various passages about why gender distinction matters to you. And I thank you, Lord, that as we strive to do all things for your glory, part of bringing your glory is living our lives out as a man and a woman. And so, Lord, I I pray, God, that for all of us here tonight, we would center our identity in you, recognize the way you have created us is a good thing, pursue to obey you in every way. Lord, be with our hearts. Let our hearts be submissive to your word. Let us continue to seek you out, to to pursue you and to glorify your name. Lord, I pray for each person here, whatever they may be going through. And talking about relationships is hard because some of us are yearning a lot. Some of us may be broken. Some of us may be confused. I pray, God, that you can help provide clarity, that you can provide comfort you can provide hope lord That can be done through obedience to your word thank you god for giving us all that we need let us then go into a time of discussion a time of reflection where we can process all that we learned and come to recognize what a great gift it is to be in relationship with you i pray and lift all these things up in your holy and precious name Amen.